0: Welcome to the podcast series Interviews and Conversations presented by the Basler-Africa Bibliographien. Today's episode features an extract from an interview done by journalist Ruth Weiss with Marinal sister Janice McLoughlin. The interview was conducted on the 30th of July 1982 in Harare, Zimbabwe. Sister Janice reflects on her decision to move to Rhodesia, where she worked for the Catholic Commission for Justice and Peace in 1977. Documenting atrocities in the Zimbabwean War of Liberation, she was arrested and deported, only to continue to work from Mozambique. After Rhodesia gained its independence in 1980, Sister Janice returned to Zimbabwe to work as an education consultant in the President's office. Ruth Weiss, who had lived in Rhodesia in the late 1960s and then was expelled, also returned in 1980 to live and work in Zimbabwe. Her interview with Sister Janice was part of Ruth Weiss's research into the lives of women and important figures in the liberation struggle. Interview with Sister Janice, 30th of July, 1982. Sister Janice, I think the first obvious question is, what is an American nun doing sitting in a room like this in Harare today
1: <laughs> well it was a long journey to get here I think uh, my whole life more or less led me to this room um, I from the time I was small had an interest in other countries particularly Africa I don't know where that sprang from but from the, I can remember in fourth grade loving to read in my geography book about Africa and Then in high school and college, trying to learn more and more about the whole continent, the struggles for liberation, and meeting various people from Africa, becoming friends with them. Then I joined the Maryknoll Sisters, which is a missionary community, back in 1961, a long time ago. And I was sent by them to Africa in 1969 studied Swahili, then I went to Kenya, worked for seven years in the communications department in Nairobi. All of that time, all those years of preparation, in a sense, made me more and more aware of the struggles of third world peoples, not only Africa, but the whole third world. The inequality between the first world nations, the very oppressive foreign policy of the United States, So I became more and more interested in, particularly in Southern Africa, working in Kenya and Tanzania, where the, the people there were very much concerned about the future of Southern Africa, and they realized their independence was incomplete without the independence of the whole continent. So that when I had an opportunity in 77 to come to, at that time, Rhodesia, and work with the Justice and Peace Commission. I didn't hesitate for a minute. I immediately said I would love to come, and everything fell into place. The bishops in Kenya agreed I could go. The bishops here accepted me uh, to come, and I started a few months later in May. I came, arrived here in May of 1977. And that time, of course, was at the height of the war, And our work with the Justice and Peace Commission put us in contact with the rural areas. And I think probably that office had as good an idea of what was going on in the country as almost anybody else. Because we had people coming in from the rural areas who trusted the Justice and Peace Commission and the church to report on particularly atrocities of the war, torture by security forces, Murders of villagers, um, the conditions in the protected villages. And my work was to draft, to draw up reports um, and compile them so that the world would really know the truth about the war. Because at that time, as you know, the propaganda uh, portrayed the war in a very different light. And we felt that people should know the truth and should hear the other side that was never heard the side of the people and the side of the liberation movements. Um so for three months I collected that information, met all kinds of very courageous people, ordinary people from the countryside who would come in. I remember one boy, I sat and I interviewed him, and he told me this whole terrible story about how he was taken to the police camps, he was beaten, not fed and you know, all this type of thing. He fainted and um after about a week he was released and then after he finished He stood up to show me his scars. Well, his whole back, his whole backside were just bleeding open sores. And here he had sat for about an hour talking as if nothing was the matter. And he was just a mass of of open bleeding wounds. Uh, People like that. And he knew that by telling us he could get even killed if it was discovered. But people would come and say, we don't care what happens to us unless people know the truth, this thing is going to go on and get worse. So the courage of people like that, even the courage of people in the Justice and Peace Commission, I mean we got death threats all the time and bomb warnings and uh, our African members were put under um, they called it restriction, it's similar to banning, things like that. So that for me that was a time of really learning and realizing what a struggle means and the types of risks that people have to be prepared to take. After three months, uh, the police uh, came, they came more many times while I was there, but at the end of the three months, they came with search warrants to look for what they called papers that were causing alarm and despondency, which were those fact papers that I was writing. Somehow they fell into their hands, which wasn't unexpected because there were so many informers there were so many informers at that time. So they searched our offices, um, then they searched the homes of four of us. In my house they found a diary, which I had more or less been keeping notes of things that had been happening as they went along and hadn't thought much of it. I wasn't expecting that my house would be searched. And then they went away. And I knew, I said, we had a Justice and Peace meeting that evening, and I said, oh, I, I know exactly what they're going to say once they read my diary. They'll be back accusing me of being a communist and supporting terrorism. And sure enough, about ten minutes later, the police came, and they took me away uh, to detention, um, to Chikarubi Prison, just outside of uh, Harare. Yes? So I was kept in detention for three weeks which was another very um, in many ways inspiring experience because the other women in the prison were all political prisoners, most of them all the black women, the majority would be political prisoners and there were several hundred of them there were about three or four coloreds who were there on petty crimes um, and three white women who were there for stealing or embezzling money, things like that I was supposedly kept in solitary confinement in the colored section. But in fact, uh, I had quite a lot of contact with the other prisoners. Prisoners have a way of evading all of the rules that there are. And they were wonderful. I mean, from the day I arrived, they showed me support the guards, the black guards there. There were three white women in charge and then all African guards. And the very first day they said, uh, we want you to know we also support the boys, but we have to feed our children. So that's why we have these jobs. And they were very kind to me um, throughout. Some of the women prisoners would smuggle notes to me. And before I left, in fact, a group of them, the grapevine, they knew before I did that I was being deported, and they smuggled these notes for me to take out of the prison, which revealed the conditions in the prison and how they were treated. And, of course, I saw in the prison the same kind of discrimination that was in the society. Even in the prison, people were segregated and had different conditions based on race so that whites had much better conditions than blacks, and the coloreds were somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Um, After three weeks in the prison, um, I was taken out once to court, twice, I guess, and to see if I could be released on bail, and they denied me bail. They said I was a self-confessed supporter of terrorism. In fact, in the court, I was asked to get up and speak for myself after the lawyers spoke, and they said, would I be willing to take the stand? So I did, and... I said very openly when they asked if I supported, um, I guess they said, do you support terrorism? And I said, I support the liberation struggle. I don't call them terrorists, you know. And and then some of the guards on the way back, they said to me, these were the black guards, they said, oh, we almost clapped when you refused to call them terrorists. Um, So anyway, I went back to prison and eventually after three weeks, I was deported back to the United States. And from there, I... I guess I'm giving you a long story about how I got here, but anyway, <laughs> um, from there I was worked in the U.S. with a church-based lobby group called the Washington Office on Africa. What we did, well, I had assumed I'd go back to Kenya, but when I got to the States, a whole group of Zimbabweans came to see me, and they said, you can't leave our struggle now. You know, stay here and work with us and help us educate Americans because they'll listen to you. They think we're exaggerating, but if you tell them what it's like, so I stayed in the States for about a year and a half, traveled a lot, giving talks, wrote a lot, uh, lobbied a lot in Congress, testified before various Senate and House committees on the conditions in Zimbabwe, um, and kept getting new information from the Justice and Peace Commission, which kept operating all this time. We were never banned, even though we were you know, harassed a lot, and the, we were supposed to go on trial. The trial, in fact, never did take place. Then... Um, after about a year and a half, in 1979, in fact, I went to Mozambique once in 78, I was invited to be a member of a delegation of black American journalists. So when I went to Mozambique, I met all of the ZANU leaders, and they were so welcoming. And I, the one in particular, I'll never forget the late Comrade Tonga Gara. He was such a fantastic person. And... Uh, we were in the airport in Maputo and somebody said, Oh, Kamar here, would you like to meet him? I said, Oh, I'd love to meet him. But I was a bit nervous, you know, I thought, Oh my, what is this man going to say? He's probably gonna tell me, you know, what are you doing meddling in our, you know, struggle? So somebody took me over and introduced me and he just he grabbed my arm and threw his arms around me and then he stood there rubbing my arm and he said, uh, you helped us you helped us prove that the color of the skin doesn't matter. He said, we keep trying to tell our comrades that the enemy isn't just the white person, that the skin has nothing to do with it, he said. And now we can use you as an example. We could tell our comrades, see, here's a white person who supports our struggle and goes to prison for our struggle. And uh, he was just, you know, so welcoming and warm. And then he said, and we need you to keep working with us. And he, I was soon going back to the States. He said, you go back and you get more supplies for us. Help us get medicines for the refugees and food. So I went back for uh, another year. And the following year I returned. By then I'd been in contact with ZANU and some of them had come to the States. And they asked if I could come and work with them and help with the refugees. And conveniently enough, at the same time, the Zimbabwe Project was formed with other people like myself who'd worked with the Justice and Peace Commission and been deported or who some way had been involved in assisting the Zimbabwe liberation struggle. So they also needed somebody to go and work in Mozambique with refugees. So the two things worked together. So I went to Mozambique in August 79 and worked there with, Working very closely, particularly with ZANU's Department of Education and Culture, but with all of ZANU's departments. ZANU set up a refugee support committee with me as a member and all of their departments as members. And we would meet regularly, we'd assess the needs, we would buy the supplies with money we'd get from the Zimbabwe Project, and then we'd take them to the camps. And um, I spent some time up at Matenje camp, which was ZANU's educational headquarters. And again, I was so impressed with what they did uh, during a very difficult period when very little food, little clothing, poor living conditions. But yet they had developed, in the midst of all that, a very uh, new and revolutionary education system, which we're now trying to implement here in Zimbabwe. But they were doing education with production. They actually had teacher training courses in progress. they had administration courses in progress. They had all primary secondary school, cultural activities, plays, you know everything going on um, in the midst of the the war. So I felt very you know, privileged to be able to be there. And they they still tease me now. They said, you were the only white we ever allowed into our camps to to actually stay with us. But again, I saw there, too, this same attitude that Comrade Tango had of this anti-racist view of the struggle because most of the camps had signs around the camps saying, um, you know, the color of the skin doesn't matter, um, things like that. So anyway, I stayed there up until July 1980 when the refugees were repatriated. And... At that time, it looked as if the work of the Zimbabwe project would wind up. Um, So I went back to England and then back to the States for a few months. And then when Comrade Mugabe came to the United Nations that September, I guess end of August, September, I met with him in New York, and he invited me to come back. He said, of course you're coming back to Zimbabwe. So then um, Mary and all my religious community agreed, and I came back in February of 1981 and started working here and since I've come back my work has mainly been in education trying to promote uh, a new form of education for Zimbabwe